We're in a really important series. Good morning, by the way, and welcome to Oasis today. But we're in a series um, built around the idea that we as human beings are not in control of our lives. Uh, it's a series called Whatever Happens, and it's just referring to the fact that we will, live at, uh, it, we will live in our life basically two ways. We'll either live at the mercy of our circumstances, or we will live at the mercies of God. And the passage that's been guiding us through this series is the famous one from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, hopefully by now you've put it to memory. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. In other words, in all of life's circumstances, God is at work, not just to give us good stuff, but to develop good inside of us so we can face whatever happens. Now, we have looked at several areas of life. We've looked at healing. We've looked at growth. We've looked at courage and peace. Um, we've talked about many of those areas so far. But today, we're going to get to one that will most assuredly come for every single person in this room. Here's how we're going to get started with this subject today. I'd like you to pretend right now that you're not sitting in church. I know that'll be hard to do, but I want you to imagine that you're a fallible human being with lots of questions. And some of those questions are like this. Does God really exist? I mean, really, is there a higher power we know as God? Is there life after death? Are human beings really destined for eternity? Or do we just kind of go out like candles when it's all over and that's it? Is this universe an accident? Or did a personal God create it for a purpose, a reason? Will all of us one day, every human being, be held morally accountable for our lives? Will justice finally prevail in this world? Or is our existence just kind of like one string of events leading to an unknown end? Nobody really knows how it's going to end up. And if there is a God then why in the world is there so much suffering and pain? And why do I pray often and my prayers go unanswered? Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but let's be honest. Do you ever have questions like that? And I don't mean in church or in your life group, <laughs> someplace that you're supposed to give the right answers. I'm talking about when you're alone in the middle of your own darkness, in the middle and the privacy of your own soul. Do you ever really, and I mean really wonder, is this stuff really true? Well, if you've had any of those questions or other questions, I have some really good news for you this morning. Doubt happens. Doubt happens. And in some ways, in some ways, as you just heard, your questions and doubts means that you really are a sincere seeker of the truth. And you might even be a person of very deep faith. You see... The activity of our mind is to think. And Jesus said one time to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So to love God with our mind, we do it through our thinking. The writer of Hebrew puts it like this. They said, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You see, it says, by faith we understand. Let me put it another way. By faith we think. The Bible tells us that faith begins with thinking. 
Faith begins with reasoning. There is a person from Scripture that kind of epitomizes this truth. Unfortunately, when people talk about this person, they often talk about him kind of in a negative light. Uh, he's one of those characters in the Bible that often gets a descriptive name applied to him. You know how certain people in Scripture, they'll be like uh, Joseph the dreamer or Moses the deliverer or, you know, David the warrior king, Paul the apostle, Esther the queen. Well, every now and then, fortunately, someone in Scripture would get a kind of a not-so-complimentary name. Maybe the most famous of all was a woman. Her name was called, she was called Rahab the harlot. I don't think if you're a harlot, you really need someone to remind you every day that that's what you are. But she was. There's another guy who has a name. In the New Testament, we often look at him and we think of him in a negative light. He is known as Thomas the Doubter or Doubting Thomas. He was a disciple of Jesus. And when you think about him, it's pretty remarkable. Even though when he's mentioned in Scripture, it isn't always very positive. I'm just going to walk through a couple of scenes with Thomas here for a moment. The first is in John's Gospel when Jesus receives the news. Remember, his friend Lazarus had died. And the disciples don't want Jesus to go back to Judea because a lot of people there wanted to stone Jesus and to kill him. But Jesus insists. He says, I have to go because Lazarus is dead. He needs to be raised from the dead. And the writer says that Thomas, Thomas says, also known as Didymus, that was his other name, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, there's probably some conjecture and some, some differing of opinions on this, uh, whether or not this was really a bold, confident statement of faith, or whether or not it was kind of like the Winnie the Pooh character, uh, Eeyore. Do you know who Eeyore is? Yeah, Eeyore. You know, I always think of it like that. Let us go that they may die with him, you know. Thomas isn't exuding confidence all the time in his life. Later on, he says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus is talking about going to prepare a place for them. And Jesus makes this statement after this. It's one of the most hotly debated, maybe one of the most misunderstood things Jesus ever said. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, Thomas needs to nail it down. He says, just tell us, Jesus, where you're going. We're on, the, we're on board with you. We'll follow you. Just tell us where this thing ends up. But Jesus, as often he is, he's unconcerned with the destination. He's more concerned with the journey. And there's one other place, and this one is classic. After Jesus is raised from the dead, John records an occasion where Jesus appears to his disciples, but but for some reason, Thomas is not present. Now listen to this. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked the fear, for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said this. He showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now notice this. Jesus shows them his hands and his side where he had been pierced. Now listen to the next part. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, 
His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Now this is where I think Thomas gets a little bit of a bum rap. He wants to see the nail prints in Jesus' hand. He wants to touch him in his pierced side. And people always equate that with a lack of faith. But it's very strange because Jesus did not rebuke the other disciples when he showed them his hands and his side. In fact, he seemed glad to do it. Even when he stands before Thomas, Jesus says, Thomas, here's the truth about my scars so you can believe. I think maybe we've been a little hard on him, Thomas. Maybe, if we're honest, we see ourselves in Thomas. Maybe there's a few of Thomases in this room this morning. Maybe he was a doubter, and maybe he was pretty normal. Maybe questioning matters of faith and life and death and everything in between really is the best way to follow this man Jesus. Now, this is not what our culture believes about religion and Christianity in particular. Our culture today thinks that Christians, religious people, are people who do not like to think. There are many, many people in our faith or in our uh, culture today, many folks who say faith doesn't make any sense at all. I don't know if you've seen a lot of the best-selling books out there, but there's a ton of them this last few years evangelizing for atheism. There's a book by a philosopher named Daniel C. Dennett called Breaking the Spell. And in the book, his claim is that for too long, religious faith has been protected by the idea that it is holy and sacred, and it hasn't been subjected to the kind of critical thinking that would reveal it to be nonsensical. There's another writer, a guy from Stanford named Sam Harris, written a couple of books. One of them is called The End of Faith. He writes in it, We have names for people who have many beliefs for which there are no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, psychotic, or delusional. While religious people are generally not mad, their core beliefs absolutely are. And it's not just people writing books, friends, who struggle with questions. It's not just people promoting a certain philosophical point of view. I found that all of us tend to struggle sometimes to believe. Someone believes for an alcoholic father for 20 years and he never, ever changes. Someone believes for prayer or in prayer and prays for a sister who has mental illness and yet she eventually commits suicide. Someone says, you know, I used to believe in God. I used to walk close with God. But then I began to have questions, and I went through a dark period in my life, and now I feel like God is a stranger. And I'm trying to pray, but I'm real nervous because I'm not getting any answers. Can I be honest and tell you that I've been a pastor, a minister in some form, fashion for 30 years, and I will tell you in the last two years of my life, I have more doubts and I have struggled more in my faith than at any other time in my life. Any other time. Doesn't that give you great confidence in being in this church? <laughs> I want to walk through this thing with you for faith and doubt today because, listen to me, doubt happens. 
We have to love God with our minds and not just, although we have to with our emotions or feelings, but not just with our emotions and feelings. What does it mean to struggle and to question? And where does faith and commitment come in this whole thing of following Jesus? My hope is that in the next few moments, we'll get a little bit of help so that we can leave here with a little bit more, just a little bit more thoughtful and deeper faith. And here's why. Because everyone in this room lives at the mercy of their ideas about the way things are. I'm going to say that again. Just like we will live at the mercy of our circumstances or at the mercy of God, we will also live at the mercy of our ideas about the way things are in this world. And there is no way to have a strong attachment to God with our minds if we have deep questions in the back of our minds that we have never been afraid to honestly look at. That makes sense. You can say you love him. You can say you believe in him. You can say you follow him. But if you've never really faced the questions and doubts in the back of your mind that are there time and time again, it is hard to love God with your whole mind. Here's some observations about faith and doubt. The first one is this. There is no such thing as doubt-free living. Part of what it means to be a fallible, finite creature with a limited IQ is that we have no escape from doubt. I'm going to give you an example. When I got married, there was no doubt-free guarantee that it was the right decision. I knew I wanted to do it. I thought it was a good decision. I knew I was marrying up. <laughs> Mainly because Robin told me I was marrying up. <laughs> Mainly because Robin tells me that all men marry up. <laughs> right, ladies? Yeah. But there was no guarantee. When my brothers and I ventured out into business over 20 years ago, now to launch a business, we thought it was the right decision. We thought we could make it together and not kill each other. There was no guarantee, though. There are always lurking doubts. Sometimes there still are some doubts. But you know what? No guarantee. Now, there are a number of factors in why folks doubt. Sometimes it can be because of things like depression. Sometimes it can be because we're, we're uh, you know, disobedient in a certain way. We don't want to believe certain things, so we just kind of ignore them. But partly, at least, doubt is just an inescapable part of being a finite creature. I'll say it this way. If you want doubt-free living, friends, you chose the wrong species to be born into. <laughs> There's a little book in the Bible, right at the back of the Bible, right next to Revelation. And in the book of Jude, it says, be merciful to those who doubt. <laughs> be merciful. You know, I, I've chosen to spend my life the way I have by following Jesus, not because uh, I think I have all the answers, because I still question, I still struggle, because I think it's the best way to live. But if you want all doubt removed, friend, listen, you will never get married, you will never get a job, you will never have a child, you definitely won't have a child, <laughs> you will never make a friend. And you certainly will never follow God. That leads me to the second thing. There's no such thing as doubt-free living, but there's also the fact that every person on earth lives by faith. 
I was talking to somebody. They were talking about how hard it is for them to have faith. And it was kind of this whole concept of some people have it and some people don't. That some people live by what can be proven, by what's rational and logical and reasonable. Uh, and then there are the other group of people that are called faith people. <laughs> well, the point I want to make here is that the idea that some people live by faith and others do not is not true. Every human being on this planet lives by faith. I'll give an example. Back at Christmas, I was out of town with my family. We went to a place, and the temperature one morning was 19 degrees. With the wind factor, it was about 2 degrees. Some people call that hell. It happened to be Nashville, Tennessee in this case. When we got back to Florida, it was a little cool the first day, but the second day I walked outside, and it was this most fabulous Beautiful day. Blue sky, little nice breeze, like 71 degrees. And I realize how much God loves me to let me live in Florida, <laughs> right? At least this time of year. And I had this thought, this thought, just an instant. It was like, it's so great to be alive. How lucky am I am right now to be alive here? Now, here's the deal. If you try to prove that statement, that it's great to be alive, and if you wait to believe it until a physicist or a biologist or a mathematician proves it, then you probably need to buy the dirt farm right now because it cannot be proved. It is a basic conviction like the belief that children deserve lavish love and that all human beings are created equal. They cannot be proven scientifically or mathematically or by logic. There are good reasons for them to be held true. They're not just emotional states or preferences like, hey, I prefer vanilla over chocolate. Part of the reasons I believe in the Christian faith is that the writers of scriptures tell us what the reason is. Why we ought to believe it is good to be alive. They say that there was a creation and that God was at work and that God saw it was good, and God said, it is good. Now again, the world's been messed up, I understand. The world has problems, I understand. But in those moments where we're aware that life is good, that conviction, friends, is not just some survival instinct. It is not just genetic DNA programming. It is not just an emotional statement. It is tied to the way things really are. Now that's one possibility. Let me give you another possibility. Jennifer Hedge is an author. She writes a very fascinating book called A History of Doubt. And in the book, she offers an assessment scale to judge where you are when it comes to the God question, to the faith question. At one far end of the scale, she offers this account to explain how things might be. Now, here's how she describes one end. At one end, the universe is nothing but an accidental pile of stuff jostling around with no rhyme or reason. And all life on earth is but a tiny, utterly inconsequential speck of nothing in a corner of space existing in the blink of an eye, never to be judged, noticed, or remembered. Aren't you excited about that one? Now imagine this conversation. This is important. One person says the universe is nothing but a pile of stuff. That's it. The other person says, no, 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 no. I think it's created, I think it was created, however that happened, by a personal God for a reason. 
Here's my point. This is not a conversation between two people, one with faith and a person with no faith. Neither of those positions can be proven. Both of those positions rest on a series of belief, and both of those, both of those are based on faith. Now, we don't like living that way. Every once in a while, someone will figure out a way not to live without faith. They kind of believe, you know, live on basis of what they know, only what they know. Some of you guys in high school or college, you studied a, a philosopher. He was asked the question, what's the one thing I can know because, uh, you know, for sure, without any doubt, what's the one thing in life I can know? And what he came down to was this. He said, at least I know that I exist because I'm the one who's doubting. I'm the one asking the question. And he summarized his thoughts in that famous statement, I think, therefore, I am. There's a whole school of philosophy built on that. Even Descartes' position became radically undermined. Today we call this skepticism. We can't know truth. We can't even know if we exist. There's an old story about a class on skepticism. I told you guys this before. On the final exam, there was one question. And there was one chair set out in the middle of the class. The only question on the exam was, to the class, prove that this chair exists. Everybody starts writing these long essay questions in response. One kid takes out his essay book and has a single response. His answer is, what chair? <laughs> Only one who gets an A in the class. <laughs> See, skeptics believe that it's impossible to know whether or not a chair exists. But tell, let me tell you something. Even skeptics sit down. In the scripture, the writer of Hebrews say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. People read that and they say, oh, I'm never going to please God. <laughs> they wonder, why do we have to have faith? Listen, it's true that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But the point I want to make this morning is it, without faith, it's impossible to please anybody. <laughs> Try to make a friend without faith. Try, listen, be a parent without faith. Try getting married without faith. Try to raise a child Without faith, yes, it is impossible to please God, but without faith, it's impossible to live. This is why Paul made a great statement. He said the righteous will live by faith. That is true, but let me tell you, the unrighteous will live by faith too. Just a different kind of faith. So we all struggle. Here's what we need to know. Faith is only required when there are no doubts. If I have a $20 bill and I say in my hand, hey, I've got a $20 bill, you know how I can for sure get rid of all your doubts? And that is to show you a $20 bill in my hand. When knowledge comes, listen, faith is no more. You don't need it. I say this because some people say, you know, I think I can become a Christian or I can't become a Christian because I still have all these doubts. I'm still not completely sure. What I want to say to you is as long as there are doubts, friends, as long as there are uncertainties, that's the only time that you're going to need faith. When the doubts are gone, you don't need faith anymore. Now we live in an age when we need faith. Paul said it like this, Now we see but a poor reflection, then we shall see face to face. We don't do that right now. 
Now I know in part. In other words, I have questions and doubts, but then I shall be fully known. I will fully know even as I am fully known. That brings me to this fault. Real faith stimulates profound thinking and reasoning. Here's what happens many times between faith and reason. People will say, you have faith, I have reason. You have faith, I have rationality. But that's not really the way it works. C.S. Lewis, most of you know from the Chronicles of Narnia, he had a great example about how faith really operates. He says, imagine you go to the doctor, and the doctor says to you, hey, listen, you have this little innocuous growth here, and we need to take it out. It's not a really complicated thing. It's really simple. I can do it in the office, local anesthetic. In fact, it doesn't take a lot of skill to do this. My dog could do it. So you go home and do what everybody does after they leave the doctor. You Google. <laughs> and you realize, hey, this doctor really knows what he's talking about. And he's done a lot of these operations. Those people seem to still be alive. This is a really easy operation. So you're kind of convinced. You looked it up. The evidence convinces you. But as most people know, when you go to the doctor to have the procedure done on the day you actually walk in that office and you sit down and you see those instruments and you smell that smell and you see those lab, white lab coats and you look at that table where you have to lay down and you see that local anesthesia, you know, that shot that you're going to receive, something begins to happen. You start having doubts. Now let me ask you, when you start having that anxiety and those doubts and those concerns, are they coming from new evidence? Are they coming from new reasons? See, you're losing your faith, but why are you losing your faith? It's because why? You're not thinking anymore. Have you stopped reasoning? Of course. You're losing your faith because you stopped reasoning, because you stopped thinking. You stopped looking at the evidence and you listen to your emotions and your fears. How do you get your faith back? You do what most people would do. You say, okay, listen, I looked this up on Google and I know what the facts are. <laughs> I know what this doctor has done. I know how easy this procedure is. I know how simple it is. See, the way to renew your faith is to renew your thinking. One time Jesus was talking to a group of people. He says, listen, you guys are so worried. You're so anxious. You have so much anxiety. He says, you who are worried, he said, consider the lilies of the field. God takes care of them. He says, you people who are worried and have anxiety, consider the birds of the air. God takes care of them. He says, oh, ye of little faith, if God takes care of the birds of the air and the grass of the field and you are more valuable than they, won't he take care of you? What he's teaching here on, Jesus is teaching here about faith. And he says, look at the birds, look at the lilies of the field. He says, consider them. Why does he use the word consider? He says, I want you to stop and think. Stop and think. Jesus does not say, listen, <laughs> if you want to have faith, just believe. Jesus does not say that. What he says is, stop and consider. Martin Lord Jones says in his great sermon on this, he says, Jesus insists that the whole trouble with people of little faith is that they do not think. 
They allow circumstances to bludgeon them. They allow feelings to collar them. The Bible is full of reasoning. We must never think of faith as something purely mystical. Faith progresses through thinking. This is why we struggle with worry so much in our society. Instead of letting reason control our thoughts, other things control them. And then we start this carousel of anxiety. Worry is the absence of thinking. Unbelief is the absence of thinking. And for the Christian, a lack of faith is the failure to think. This is why I tell people who are kind of skeptics. I said that the invitation of Christianity to a skeptic is not to suspend your thinking and just believe. Faith encourages you to reason and to think. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says, if you have a premise that there's no God, and that leads to a wrong conclusion that you know is wrong. In other words, you know there's evil in the world. There's right and wrong. Genocide is wrong. You know there's a such thing as human dignity. If you keep having premises that are wrong, then you need to think about changing your premise. I hope that we can be a place continually at Oasis where we tell people it's okay to reflect and think and doubt and have faith through reasoning. Here's why. Because doubt can lead to stronger faith. There is a purpose behind doubt. And that purpose is to lead you, friends, to a stronger faith. You know, I don't know how many people you've talked to in some very honest moments. But I've talked to people when they were really honest about what they believed. And most of them would tell me that they were overwhelmed most of the time by feelings of guilt. A lot of it had to do with the way they were raised as a child and they were brought up in a certain church in a certain environment. And they honestly feel like they're not very good Christians or Christ followers because of it. A lot of them have stuffed down those questions and those doubts. I was talking to one person last year and they told me, they said, you know, I don't read any of those books by those atheistic guys like Hitchens and Sam Harris and all these. I'm afraid if I read it, it'll undermine my faith. Now listen, I'm not saying that you have to read those books or you necessarily want to read them, but I do want to say this. If the reason you're avoiding that kind of stuff is because you're afraid it will destroy your faith, then what you're really saying, and I say this as gently as I can, deep down inside what you're saying is, I don't believe that Jesus was really right. And it's impossible to trust Jesus if you don't think he was really right. That's one of the reasons I love our church. We try to be a place where we can talk about and think about. And we don't have to pretend that we affirm all the things that we're supposed to believe. But we focus on a few basic truths and then we get to the point of examining what we really think. I'll say it like this. According to Jesus, you do not have to choose between truth and Jesus. (laughs) Jesus said, if you search for truth, ta-da, you find Jesus. There is no other way to trust Jesus than to work it out and to think through it and to wrestle and to struggle. Because doubt happens. Now, I'll say this to you as we close. The last thing I want you to know today, if you're struggling at any point in your faith is this, when certainty is impossible, faithfulness is still on the table. You've heard me say this to you before. 
See, Thomas wasn't the first doubter in the Bible, and he certainly wasn't the last. I mean, you think about guys like Abraham, and women like Sarah, Elijah, John the Baptist, all of those people. Jesus' own family thought he was crazy at one point. All of his disciples ran away and hid at one point. And yet, all of these doubters, God never gave up on any of them. And the reason is, is God never asked anyone to develop certainty. He just asked them to be faithful to what they know. I'll say it again. God asked people to be faithful to what they know. The way it happens in our day is like this. We keep trying to get people to trust Jesus for eternity. We keep trying to get people into heaven. But we don't ever help them learn how to trust Jesus for their daily lives. And I'll tell you, as a matter of psychological reality, that way just does not work. It produces people who say they trust Jesus, who think they trust Jesus, but what they do will show that they do not share his ideas about the way things really are in this world. The disciples, on the other hand, looked at Jesus and they said, man, I wish I could be like him. I wish I had Jesus' joy and Jesus' peace and his boldness. I wish I could have a life like that. So when they tried doing what Jesus instructed, they found, this is kind of crazy, that it actually worked. <laughs> when they were angry with someone and tried forgiveness, they found out it worked. When they were generous with their stuff, and they became generous and gave it away, and they figured out that it was better than hoarding and holding on to it. They found out that serving people was better than powering up on people and dominating them. The crazy thing, they did what Jesus did, and it worked. Elton Trueblood wrote these words. They are so true. He said, the deepest conviction of the Christian is that Christ was not wrong. I'll tell you what. Toward the end of the book of Matthew, we see the last glimpse of the men who followed Jesus for three years. The group that learned from him and watched him die, saw him resurrected, and Jesus stands before them and he gives them what we call the Great Commission. Now listen to what it says in Matthew's Gospel, and we'll close with this. Then the disciples went to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Everybody with me here? Read the last line with me. But some doubted. Huh? They've seen him. They've listened to him. They followed him. They studied him. They saw him crucified, resurrected from the dead. And the last thing that Matthew puts in, and some doubted. What's this guy thinking? I love what the theologian Dale Bruner says. He says, the Christian faith is bipolar. Disciples live their life between worship and doubt, trusting and questioning, hoping and worrying. Jesus looks at this group of people, and he knows there's doubters there, and he says, listen, you go. You go out there. You go out there, and you teach people, and you baptize people, and you let people know that I love them. See, disciples are not people who never doubt. They doubt, they worship, they doubt, they serve, they doubt, and they help each other. Apparently, according to Jesus, you know what? He's okay with that. Because listen to who is mentioned at the very end of this passage. 
Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and thank goodness, Thomas. He's still hanging in there. Probably still had some doubts. But Thomas said, you know what? When certainty is impossible, I'll just be faithful to what I know. And apparently Jesus said, that's okay. Before we come to the table, let's pray. Lord, we're about to come to your table, the table of grace, the table of uh, community, the table of remembering. And as we do this morning, there may be a lot of doubts lingering, lurking in the minds of your people. Maybe it's about prayers that haven't been answered. Maybe it's about the, you know, order of this universe and where we really came from. Maybe it's a question about um, salvation and grace. Maybe it's a question about why their life has turned out the way it has. May we hear you say to us today very clearly, I love doubters. I love people who are willing to question. I love people who are willing to reason and think through. As we come to the table, may we come to a crossroads with you, God, where we decide will we be thinkers and feelers or just feelers? Or will we be thinkers and feelers or just thinkers? Help us today as we come to the table and remember the Jesus that we say we serve, that we want to serve, and what he did for us.